In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. This is Cami, and welcome to Money Tales. If you're like me, you know a lot of people who dream of receiving a large inheritance, more money than they could ever imagine. And in those dreams, all problems disappear. But reality is much more complicated. Many inheritors experience conflicting feelings of guilt, shame, appreciation, and security. Sandy here. In today's episode, we talk with Anne. As you'll hear, it's extremely difficult for Anne to discuss money because she was strictly raised not to. In order to feel more comfortable speaking to us in a raw and honest way about her experience as an inheritor so that we can all learn from her stories, Anne has asked us not to reveal her identity. We truly appreciate Anne for stepping so far out of her comfort zone in order to share her money tales with us. Anne, we applaud your courage to be vulnerable. Thank you. In our conversation, Anne mentions that she is the beneficiary of different trusts. If you're curious about how trusts are used by families to transfer wealth from one generation to the next, be sure to stick around after the interview for today's financial insight. For now, let's get started with this episode. Anne, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad you're with us today. So pleased to be here. To get us started in this conversation, would you please give us an overview of the journey of your life so far, focusing on maybe two or three pivotal moments that have really turned you into the person that you are today speaking with us? I am the oldest of five. I'm the third grandchild of 18. And that's actually an interesting beginning to the story because I think of myself as the third of 18 and a grandchild of one side of the family. And I've never done the math on what I am on the other side. Right. So that already says something, right? <laughs> Professionally, I followed the rules, went to college, and then I started my career using my head. I started as a pension actuary and slowly over time, over the course of about 20 to 25 years, I started drifting from my head to my heart. <laughs> and that started with an MBA. And then I got into the finance domain and I was recruited into marketing and then into sales. Then I left the corporate world and I ran my father's business. And that was a massive pivotal change for me. That was probably the one of the biggest changes. And the context behind that was I'd had a challenging relationship with my father for the first 40 some odd years of my life. I knew that if I worked directly for him, that it would force me to confront some of the stuff that was unresolved in my head and in my heart. And sure enough, I did. It was a fascinating experience. I found leadership in a family business to be substantially different from leadership in a corporate environment. I found working for my father to be as difficult, if not more than I thought it would be. That probably the next biggest pivot I made was leaving my father's business. And that's when I sort of finished the work that I needed to do related to my father. So it was 
starting to work for him was sort of the beginning of the work. Stopping to work for him was when I really dove in deep. And I'll answer the obvious next question is, what did you learn in all that work? And if there's another question, then feel free to ask it. But (laughs) (laughs) I think what I learned over the course of probably the, the five years after I left my father's business is that my father isn't the father that I want him to be. And he is doing the very best that he can. Like he's the best father he can be. He'll never be the father that I want. And that's okay. I've changed my expectations. Like I no longer hold out for the father that I wanted to have. And I've learned to accept the father that I do have. And the other probably biggest aha was that his behavior isn't about me. Can you take us back though to your childhood and and maybe start to explain more about your family relationships and how money played a role or whether it played a role while you were growing up? Sure. It was an interesting childhood because when I was a, a young kid, we lived a relatively comfortable life, but it was lights, 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 lights. What are we doing? Air conditioning the entire city? You know, it was very much about conservation and being frugal. And at the same time, when I was around my grandfather, we would take his private plane to Palm Beach and Martha's Vineyard. And so it was sort of this interesting juxtaposition. My grandfather was extremely frugal. He had a comfortable home, but he he had duct tape on all of the stairs to hide the rips, you know, and, and yet he's got a private plane and he's got a home and, you know what I mean? So it's really interesting juxtaposition of sort of opulence and frugality at the same time. And my grandfather would happily say that these luxury homes were all about business. They were all about his professional endeavors. And it was a part of his, I don't think he ever said this, but I think it's a part of his professional brand to have that, those kinds of, of opportunities. Interesting. And is this grandfather your father's father? It is. Yeah. Yeah, My father doesn't have the same facility with math and numbers. My grandfather was very astute with finances. My father's much more oriented towards marketing. (laughs) Let's just say not as comfortable in the financial domain. So when we were a kid, my father's secretary paid all our bills. My mom didn't pay them. My dad didn't pay them. He just transferred all the bills to the secretary and she took care of everything. And to this day, that's still the case. He doesn't pay a bill. So grandpa, he is very frugal, but very successful. Dad learns from that, it sounds like. Is that how you learned? Was that part of your upbringing? Is that in your genes? You know, <laughs> Great question. And I'm going to answer in a couple different ways. So as a young child, yeah, frugal, frugal, frugal. But In my father's 50s, he inherited quite a sum of money and he swung the pendulum the other way. I mean, he went really extreme in the expending side. And if he was going to buy one truck, he would buy four. If he would buy one bronze statue, he would buy six. And if he's going to buy a home in one state, he's going to buy different homes in three other states. And because he doesn't have his arms around his financial circumstances. And because he was telling his assistant to, to pay everything. And at this point he had a CFO and his CFO was sort of doing a, not a shell game in terms of like hiding money, but just sort of, all right, a bill came in. How are we going to fund this one? It became a really different story. And I had 
a big problem with that. I had grown up to prefer a frugal lifestyle. My mother was always very conservative with money and she had a mindset of, I'd say more of a mindset of scarcity. The father had a mindset of abundance once he inherited, but it wasn't informed abundance. It was abundance that was uninformed. And so he kind of embraced this mindset that he could buy anything. He can do anything he wants. He's a exillionaire, whatever. And he lived as if he were a zillionaire without regard to what the reality was. He, he never actually put together the big picture financial situation. And there was a point in time, gosh, I don't know, I can't remember how old I was, but it was in my 40s that it became clear that he was way outspending his income and he was depleting his estate at a rapid, rapid pace. And I was a part of the process of informing him. And that was not fun. And at this point, are you working with your father in his business or... Where does your working with your dad fall on a timeline with your realization that he's overspending? When I started working for him, I was invited to be a co-trustee on a trust that my grandfather set up. It was a generation skipping trust for all of his descendants. And I learned about being a trustee. And then I stopped working for my father. And then I was still a trustee. And my father requested a significant loan from the trust. And as a trustee, I said, okay, well, what's the collateral and what's the payback plan? And he was very insulted by those questions. And I felt it was appropriate as a trustee to ask those questions. Our relationship was not strong at that time. And this certainly didn't help it in any way. So that's when I began the... And actually, it was um, at the advice of an estate planning attorney to, to ask his CFO to start doing some financial pro formas so that we could get an idea of what his cash in, cash out was on an annual basis and, and forecast it and to see when and if he would actually outspend his assets. It took a long time for that finally to get put together, but that was a really important thing. That, and if we hadn't done it, he would have outspent his assets. But we were able to catch it in enough time where he was reluctantly able to make some lifestyle changes, sell some of the property, get rid of a lot of the overhead, you know, minimize the private flying and right the ship, so to speak. But I don't think he likes it to this day. <laughs> he doesn't like the fact that... That sounds that like an incredibly out. difficult position for you to be in to be a trustee for a trust where your dad is a, a beneficiary or at least an income beneficiary. So. And the primary, the primary beneficiary on the trust. It was an awkward situation. And he took some retaliatory measures <laughs> towards me, which led me to resign as a trustee for the trust. And it was a tough, it was a really tough situation because my siblings had grown very accustomed to me sort of being the lookout and being the protector and the communicator. And the mindset that my father had was, how dare you limit my access to my assets? And my sibling's perspective was, how dare he steal from his grandchildren and great-grandchildren to fund a lifestyle that's absurd? So it was two very different perspectives on a pot of gold, the last pot of gold that really existed. It was the end. That's it. Once that's gone, it's gone. <laughs> and so there wouldn't have been anything left for his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, et cetera. 
And what's happening with your mom at this point? Is she involved in these conversations or is it really your dad with your siblings? Yeah, it's my father. My parents divorced, gosh, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago. Okay. They divorced actually shortly after he inherited the money. He finally wrote her a check and that was the end of that. It was a six-year divorce. It was very long, painful, miserable circumstance. So she's thriving, doing great. Great. Absolutely. So when this is happening, there's these family tensions between the generations. You're part of the generation that's trying to protect, but also stuck in the middle of of all these negotiations. How are you feeling about the money at that point? I think it evolved over time. In the beginning, I saw my father as a selfish man who didn't really care about anyone else but himself. And I felt attached to the money as if it was intended for me and my siblings because grandpa created it with the intention of it transferring multiple generations. It's a generation skipping trust. It was supposed to go for a long time. And I could see that it wasn't going to go. It wasn't going to survive my father's generation. And I, I felt, I think, indignant and angry and I thought it was unfair and unjust and it reinforced a negative story that I already held in my head about my father and how irresponsible he is and selfish he is. So it just exacerbated that. But it also forced me to do some of my own work on money. And I realized I didn't earn that money. Like that's not money that I earned. I didn't go out there and blood, sweat and tears make that. That was granted to me. So I started to rethink about my relationship with that money because what I really cared about was could I fend for myself? And thanks to my grandfather, I have a great education. He paid for all of my school all the way through graduate school. And as a result, I have the ability to care for myself. And that is what mattered more in the long run to me. At the same time, my father didn't earn that money either, right? (laughs) So... But he sees it as his, he sees it as his right to have. I guess I I have a more complex perspective on it now, but it changed. Your siblings at this time, are you guys talking about it? Are you talking about money amongst yourselves and what this impact is and how everybody feels? Yes, I am very open and transparent with my siblings. So I have made a commitment to being as fully transparent as I can in all things related to money, especially my father and his relationship with money. So every time I learn something, immediately communicate it with my siblings. And I do it for a few reasons. I think it's important from a transparency perspective. I think it's important from a building trust perspective with my siblings. There was a time maybe 10 or 15 years ago when I'd say the the dysfunction that resided in my father's generation with his siblings had transferred to our generation and our sibling relationships weren't that strong. And I realized that at one point my father's going to die, at one point my mother's going to die, and we're going to have to make group decisions about some of those assets. And we did not have the kind of relationships as siblings that would have been conducive to really healthy conversations. So I started calling what we call the, the G5 summit. There are five, <laughs> five kids in the family. So it's the group of five. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and we started having them on a monthly basis. And the first one, we spent 90 minutes arguing about what our protocols were going to be. Like, all right, who, how are we going to communicate? What, you know, who gets to speak and all this kind of, you know, stuff that needed to happen and brought to the table. And, and over time we started communicating more regularly. And we started to build 
more transparency about the money conversation and what our interests were and what our needs were. And of the five of us, two of us have children and three of us don't. So our needs and interests are different. They're not the same. Mm -hmm. And at this point, we have G5 summits periodically. They're not on a scheduled basis. We just had one actually last week. (laughs) That was important. And so when there's a money issue that comes up, and it's interesting because they typically are related to money-related issues, either with my mother or my father, we do come together and and try to talk it out. And when you first started meeting with your siblings in this way, were you doing it entirely on your own or did you guys have outside advisors or or people helping you? Mm -mm, On our own. I just said, I said, this is ridiculous. We treat each other worse than we treat our friends. Why are we doing this? We need to start building trust and connection in our generation. It was interesting. Here's the, the example I'll share. When my father's father died, my father and his siblings hired attorneys and ripped apart the estate. It took years. When my mother's parents died, my mother and her siblings fell over each other trying to say, no, 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 you take this. No, you take, you take this piece. No, no, you take that. No, no, no. You just, they were trying to help. It was such a different mindset, such a different orientation towards the same circumstance. There's a pile of assets that need to get distributed. How are we going to do it? My father's generation was me, me, me. And my mother's generation was let's help each other. And so that's when I was able to see, I was able to juxtapose these two mindsets and I was able to see how radically different they were. And I saw that our sibling group was behaving like my father's family. Mm. And that's not going to work. That's not going to help. That's not going to be what is in service to our needs in the long run. So what can we start doing now? How can we start to build the foundation now for healthy conversations when we do have to have those hard ones? Because when, when the hard stuff happens, our emotions are going to be at their absolute peak and our worst selves are going to show up. So let's try to build as much trust. Let's try to build as much connection as we can now because we're still going to show our asses, excuse my language, <laughs> <laughs> when the stuff gets real. But the more we invest in our relationships now, the better off we're going to be. That was my assumption. And both my parents are still living, so I don't know if that's that's going to bear out, but I hope so. I am so curious about something with this difference between mom's family and dad's family. Have you gotten to the bottom of why do we treat money in such different ways? Is it the size of the estates? Is it just how they talked about money as kids? Do you have a sense? Don't know. I'll share that the size of the states are different. My grandfather was a very, very successful entrepreneur. And so the size of the state was much, much, much bigger. I know my mom's side of the family was quite comfortable. They were all professionals in the legal field, you know, so they were all working professionals, but they didn't have generations of wealth the way that my my grandfather did. So that may have been a piece of it. In general, it seems like my experience of money and this comes not only from my personal experience, but from what I've seen from others, is that it makes the good things a little bit better and it makes the bad things a lot worse. Mm -hmm. It's like the stuff that's unhealthy in a family gets massively amped up when there's massive money involved. I don't know. There's so much work that needs to happen in humanity related to money. And that's why I'm so grateful for these money tales. I mean, as you know, you and I talked about in the beginning, I have very little interest in sharing my personal stories at a public level. It's just horrifying to me 
to talk about all this super, super private stuff in a public forum. I was taught at a very early age that you don't talk about money. It's not just tacky, it's risky. You know, you're putting yourself at risk. You could get kidnapped. You, you know, there's so much that you're exposing that makes you vulnerable by talking about money. It's the massive taboo. I mean, I'd rather talk about my sex life than talk about money. <laughs> a lot of people are like that. Yeah, it's so it's awful. And I also know how important it is that these conversations come out, that these discussions happen. And so I'm choosing between purpose and safety. Safety would have me say, thank you so much. You guys were so lovely, but I'm not going to do this. This is not of interest to me. And it's, there's nothing I'm getting out of this, right? Mm-hmm. But if I tether to purpose and I realize that if I can share part of my story and it helps other people in whatever journey that they're on, then it's been worth it. We really thank you for having the conversation we're having right now. And let's just check in. How is this feeling for you to, to talk about it with everything you just said and how you were raised? What's happening for you physically and emotionally? I've got like so much tension in my shoulders right now. Like when I get nervous, usually it's in my stomach, but for whatever reason right now, my shoulders are like eight inches off my normal shoulder height. It's like they're touching my earlobes right now. <laughs> it's very uncomfortable. My stomach's a little bit nervous, but I'm holding all this in my shoulders right now. So I guess what's my emotion? <sighs> Extreme discomfort, awkwardness, shame. I feel vulnerable. It feels dangerous. Everything you just mentioned are feelings that people have all the time, regardless of how much money they have or don't have. So thank you for being real with us. This is really, really great. Can we go back in time again, Anne, to when you were first becoming conscious of the fact that there was a lot of wealth in your family and maybe outwardly conscious in terms of other people knowing? Yeah. In my grade school, I grew up in a wealthy suburb and my grade school, everyone was the same as me. So I didn't really notice anything. And then I went to boarding school and I was from a different region of the country than most of of my classmates. My classmates were mostly from the East Coast and I wasn't. So people would ask me things like, well, what does your father do for a living? What kind of car does he drive? You know, what kind of clothes do you have? And I was like, well, like, why do you care? (laughs) What does that have to do with me? And so it was my first aha that I was getting rank ordered. Like I was getting put into a box based on definable characteristics or brand indicators that would assess whether I was good enough or not. Or at least that's how I heard it, whether that was how people, why people were asking, I don't know, but that's how it, certainly how I heard it. And then in college, there was a moment in time when it, when it got really obvious. So in college, I was just a regular schmo going through school. And then my senior year, my grandfather donated a substantial sum to the university and they named the business school after him. The university you were attending? Correct. Yes. And so my last name and the business school's last name were the same and people put it together. And it was fascinating to see how people responded because there were an equal number of people who suddenly became my best friend including my French teacher, who I was just like a booger in the classroom for the, you know, for the whole French class. And all of a sudden she finds out that, you know, I've 
the daughter of the, or the granddaughter of, and all of a sudden she wants to hang out with me and be my friend and do stuff. I was like, what on earth? And then the other, then another equal number of people just shut me out. Like, oh, you're one of them. You're one of those people. Oh, I, I'm not friends with you. I didn't realize you were one of those people. And then my friends that I'd known for three and a half years would ask me things like, so do you guys dress for dinner? I'd be like, what do you mean dress for dinner? Of course we wear clothes. <laughs> but like, I think she thought, are we wearing like formal attire at dinner? I'm like, no. <laughs> but there's such a, an image that people have of wealth that's so disconnected from reality. And that's when I realized, oh, snap, I'm wealthy. And I used to talk about trusts and, and like the trust this and the trust that. It took me ages to realize that a trust is the same as a trust fund. And I was a trust fund. I was like, oh my God, I have a trust fund. I just thought it was a trust. I mean, I know it's so stupid. Like it's, it's such a simple, but it was like, it was totally lost on me that a trust is a trust fund. Because I was like, oh, I'm not like those trust funds. I embraced all that judgment of those trust fund obnoxious twits. And then suddenly I realized I was one. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, it's like so naive. When did you become aware of the trust in its existence? I can't remember how old I was, but there was a point when my grandfather encouraged us to start our learning journey on this stuff. And I'm grateful that he did. So we were shown some spreadsheets and, and I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but what was really clever about his strategy, and I, I just am so grateful, is that he introduced us to to the concepts of the trust and the terms of the trust and the asset values of the trust. And he also made it explicitly clear that we couldn't touch any of it. So there were trusts that were created that would be available for, like there was, a, there was one that where we could get a distribution at age 30, age 35, and age 40. But we were, I don't know, 21 or 18 or whatever, how old we were. So that was a zillion years away, like 30 years old was forever from now. Like, all right, I don't have to worry about that. And, and those trusts were much smaller, the large trusts. It was clear that they were for very specific things. We were told they were for education, for extraordinary medical expenses, for the down payment of our first home, and for extraordinary travel that had to do with education or something like that. And so we were like, okay, cool. Thanks. And what I remember feeling at that moment was, oh my God, this is so cool. If I get really sick, I'll be okay. Like it was such a, a security blanket for me. It was like, oh my God, if things get really, really bad, I'm going to have a backup. I have a backup plan. This is so great. If I were your grandfather, I'd be so happy to hear that because that's what it seems like it was for, to have that, to give that confidence. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm living what he manifested in a way that my father didn't. My father went the other way. <laughs> my grandfather preached frugality over and over and over. He used to send out these memos all the time. We'd get memos constantly about how important it is to be frugal, frugal, frugal. And yeah, it didn't land apparently. Where do you think that came from, from your grandfather, that sense of frugality and his desire to teach you about it? Let's see. He was born in the aughts. I don't know, oh, oh, four, oh, seven, something like that. 19, not the 20 aughts. 19 <laughs> aughts. <laughs> and 
so let's see when would the if he was born in let's put like round numbers oh five and the depression was in twenty nine I mean that was a really really he was in his early twenties when that happened, so that certainly could explain it I mean that's amazing, presumably he started his business after that point, yeah, um and it sounds like he was extremely successful. So I think it's just really fascinating that the depression experience could have such an impact on someone who was so financially successful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to be said there. Oh, oh, let me add one thing. I think this is actually important. I just came to the realization this week in a completely separate conversation that I have over-embraced frugality. I am like a cheap bastard. <laughs> Say more. Um, <laughs> I think it's really come from like not wanting to be branded like my dad. My father had this, you know, his behavior I found so reprehensible and I was so critical of it that I couldn't possibly behave in a way that would come anywhere close to replicating him. So I just went severely the other way. My husband jokes, he went to continuing education one time for his profession. And one of the, one of the guys was talking about trust. And he said, it's really interesting being a trustee because you have one extreme where they call you up asking permission to buy a toaster. And then they have the other extreme where they buy a a zoo of exotic animals in South Africa. And then you get the bill a month later and you have to figure out how to pay it. And then there's everything in between. And and my husband's like, you don't need permission to buy a toaster. (laughs) And so I remember when, like, <laughs> when COVID hit and I saw the market tumble, I'm like, we need to start double using dryer sheets. We can't be so, you know, frivolous as to use one dryer sheet for every dryer load. We need to start double, you know, using one dryer sheet for two dryer loads. I mean, we're talking about pennies, right? <laughs> it's just like an irrational mindset. That's how severe my, <laughs> my, my psychological relationship with money is it's ridiculous. When did you realize that though? You mentioned a week ago, maybe that was figuratively or. Oh no, I've known I'm a cheap bastard. <laughs> the attachment to the frugality. And I think the connection between not wanting to be branded like my dad and not being able to tolerate, it's sort of like cognitive dissonance. If I do something my dad would do, that would mean that I have to criticize myself because I criticized him for so long. So as I've, learned to show my father more grace in my heart. I'm learning to show myself a little bit more grace in my heart too. (laughs) And I haven't been double using my dryer sheets. (laughs) What is the financial edge for you? When does it start getting really uncomfortable when it comes to spending? The scariest moment financially was when I left my father's business and I started my own business. And it took me a while, you know, when you start a new business to make enough money to support my lifestyle. And I also chose a profession that is deeply fulfilling and really, I think in my, at least in my mind, meaningfully impactful in the world in a positive way, but it's not a get rich quick scheme. It's not a profession that is a lucrative profession. And so I had never, ever not had a higher bank balance at the end of the year than I had at the beginning of the year. And when I had a couple of years where I had a lower bank balance at the end of the year or lower net worth, it was just horrible. It was so horrible, so terrifying. And I knew it was going to happen, but it was just ridiculously 
And let's not forget that I have never, ever wanted for anything. I've bought anything I've ever want. I've bought every home with cash. I've bought every car with cash. Like we're talking very irrational relationship with money, right? Like super irrational. So I've never really been on the edge financially. But you feel it. Yeah, but it's, yeah. it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous how I feel it, right? And it, it's become so clear to me. And I have to give credit to a lot of people who I won't name today. I did not appreciate my privilege for way too long, way, way, way too long, because my social set is also from privilege. And it's taken me many, many more years than it should have to realize how much privilege I have, not only in the world, but in the US. In the US, I have ridiculous privilege. And so I spend a lot more time now and I spend a lot more thought on where to give money away. And it's hard, right? Because you can tell I don't like to see money go out, right? Like I like to see, I have the first penny I ever earned (laughs) still in the bank. It's really hard for me to see money go out the door because every time I see it, it makes me nervous. Like I'm not safe. I'm not safe. It's so irrational. And yet I think I'm doing enough work on my money stuff now that I'm, I'm getting really, really generous, which is good. What type of work is that? I get, it's not as obvious to me. I think about it from our perspective, but what do you, when you say you're working on it, what are you doing? It's really conversations with my family and my nuclear family and my extended family. I'm not working with a psychologist, but I think frankly, everyone should. I think everyone should talk to a psychologist about money. And frankly, I think psychologists still have a lot of work to do on money themselves. I think that's a big missing piece in the grand world of psychology that there are a lot of people in that, in that domain. I think it's just, you know, nobody talks about money. You don't do it. You don't talk about it, which is, again, why I so appreciate money tales and that you're bringing this to the world. Those are hard conversations to have, especially if you're coming from a wealthy place and you're talking to a psychologist who doesn't come from wealth. It's like, it triggers all sorts of stuff for the psychologists because they are coming from, they've got their baggage from wealth, right? They've got their stories about wealth. And so they can project, or I don't know what the fancy terms are, but I think it can be really hard for people who have such different stories about it to talk about this stuff. So it's again, like, I think this is really important. It's really important, which is why I'm tethering towards purpose here and putting myself in this discomfort (laughs) because it's really important. There's not a normal curriculum. This is new space. And because the world is becoming wealthier and wealthier, it's becoming ever, ever more important that we really do this work and have these conversations and talk through this stuff. And philanthropy can grow to be a much bigger and more important part of sort of the evolution of life. I'm a believer in capitalism, but capitalism works best when you've got people who are sharing their success with people who are less fortunate. I'd love to take you back. Can I take you back to senior year? You mentioned something so interesting that I wanted to get into. The buildings named after you. And it's, you said, it's the first time I've felt wealthy. Can you tell me what wealthy feels like? Guilty. Shame. <laughs> back to those emotions. Yeah. Yeah. Wrong. Has it ever not felt like that for you? Yes. The shame went away when I finally realized it's not anything that I could control. It's not my fault that I inherited a S-ton of money. Um, And so now I ask myself different questions like, all right, well, I've got this great privilege. What can I do with it? So now I think a lot about 
what charities are going to benefit from, <laughs> right? So it's shifted. It's shifted away from I'm wrong and I am bad, which is a shame response to what a gift. Oh my gosh. How can I make the world better with this? Powerful. I love it. And how are you making decisions about how to make the world better with your resources? It comes down to values. Like what are the values? It's interesting. I did one time because I donate a lot of time as well. And I, I reflected one time on where I donate my time. And I donate a lot of my time to things related to hunger. For some reason, like I'm very nervous about being hungry, which is why I hoard my money. As you're learning to get comfortable with your privilege and giving money to charity, can you tell us, Anne, what's been the most rewarding gift that you've given to charity to date? I'd say the most fulfilling because I had personal experience with the impact was a charity that I've been on the board and we provide prosthetic limbs to children under the ages of 18 in developing countries. And this is like tertiary care that doesn't get it's not sexy. It doesn't get attention. You know, Doctors Without Borders isn't doing this kind of work. It's kids born in really rural parts of the developing world who don't have legs or they've lost an arm and they don't have the ability to get an education because they can't get to school. They don't have the ability to work because they don't have mobility. They become a burden to the family. They become a financial burden. They can't work even in the family home. They often don't get married. They often suffer in just myriad ways just because they don't have the ability to get to school. That starts with education. So we have provided a ton of limbs to these kids around the world. And I've been to India three times. Well, I've been to India four times, but three times with this charity. And I've seen kids change over time. Like when you first meet them, they don't have prosthetic limbs and then you meet them later and they're running around and they've got these incredibly happy lives. And it's so, that's probably the most fulfilling. It's, I mean, it's definitely one that's really motivating for me, but there are other ones that I think are really motivating as well. But this one by far was the most fulfilling because I got to see the outcome. That was neat. That's fantastic. Can you tell us about meeting your husband and how you two began having money conversations with each other? Sure. We met in our 40s and we married at age 50. And he likes to joke that he represents the income statement and I represent the balance sheet. Which <laughs> Perfect pairing. Only CPAs really understand that. <laughs> but it's been a complicated relationship because he makes, you know, earns tons more than I do. And yet I have tons more wealth on paper than he does. And it, every time we talk about it, it just makes his stomach turn. He hates talking about money issues. And so, you know, it was a interesting conversation at age 50 to get married. Well, how, you know, how are we going to set up our finances? How are we going to do this? And I think we were really challenged by cultural norms, cultural norms that are based in the US, cultural norms that are based on gender. My husband is very well paid and he does work that's unfulfilling. 
and he sees his wife who has who works really hard and has a very fulfilling career and makes a fraction of what he makes and i think it's hard for him because he really wants to have a fulfilling career too and he doesn't he doesn't like his work so we've been talking about options and he's been thinking about making a change and if we make a change it's going to affect our income and it may result in right now we pretty much fund everything equally everything that we do is 50-50 it's kind of really simple if we do a massive change oh here's the other piece my husband's father died at 52 of a sudden heart attack and so my husband has this fear that he's going to suddenly drop dead of a heart attack and he will not have enjoyed his life. And his father didn't enjoy his life. His father worked up until the day he died of a heart attack at 52. And that isn't very appealing to him, my husband. So he wants to have a more fulfilling life before he dies. He's pretty much convinced himself he's going to die any moment. (laughs) And so he's thinking about stepping back from what he's doing and doing something very different that would generate a much lower income. What we could possibly do is I would contribute more than 50%, which seems perfectly fine. I mean, I've got the funds to do it, but it just twists him up that he would be carried by his wife. It twists him up in knots that he wouldn't, it it kills him that I even pay 50%. He thinks it's ridiculous, but I even, and and I'm like, I'm paying 50%. (laughs) He wants to fund everything. I insist on paying half. And so the idea of suddenly him dipping into my side of the equation, he says, he describes it this way, my gonads are in my throat. (laughs) Like it just like really makes him really, really uncomfortable. And that's a classic gender construct that's irrational. If the genders were reversed, it would be a complete non-issue, right? Even even I, and the thing is, even I go, Oh my gosh, well, if I'm paying more than 50%, okay, all right, can I do it? Can I do it? I think I can. I know I can. All right. Then my mom finds out about it. Oh, he's living off of you. He's what he's just gonna quit your job and live off of you. He's gonna be a kept man. And the idea of someone thinking, my husband thinking anyone would think of him as a kept man just melts him down. It's miserable. He can't stand it. So so we had a conversation about all right, how would we fund this? We've got money that's in my estate and there's money that's outside of my estate that we could access, which is the right move. Should we, you know, what's the right tax move? What's the right estate planning move? There's a strategy involved here. And he's like, are you kidding me? These are such rich white people problems. This is ridiculous. I've never had to deal with this before. And he gets angry about it. And I get it. I get it's ridiculous. And it's hard. It's just really hard for him. It shouldn't be. In theory, it's just really simple math, but it's just awkwardly uncomfortable. And a a part of the privilege that he, I mean, he grew up fine. He grew up comfortable, but he didn't grow up with the the multi-generations that I have the privilege of growing up with. So it's complicated. It is complicated. Perception. Sounds like he's concerned of perception. Yeah. You've got your family that you don't, you want to make sure you're not falling into the same situation that maybe other family members had, I get it, but you're in a position that 
actually, you really can do this. The money thing is such a psychological drama in our heads. So as we look to close this conversation, Anne, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners from your experience about money that you think is really important for us to take away? Um, Yeah, I actually gave some thought to if I were to share any knowledge, what would I share? Share any experiences or wisdom? I'd say start getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, like start having the really uncomfortable conversations. Cause what, one thing I've learned in my marriage is that the more you talk about it, the easier it gets, the more you avoid it, the more tense and awkward and uncomfortable it is. So, you know, this latest conversation that we had was sort of the most recent frontier of learning for him, but he's had many hurdles along the way. And those old hurdles are completely non-issues now. Like they were a big deal at the time and oh my gosh, and the hands flailing, all this stuff. And now it's like, whatever. And so this week was, to, you know, this, this was this week's hurdle <laughs> and in a month or so it'll be a non-issue and we'll keep continuing to move on. So it's a long process. It requires a lot of patience. And when someone reacts in a way that takes you by surprise or leaves you a little nonplussed, it's okay. They're doing their work, right? They're just thinking about their stuff. They're, they, they need, everyone needs time to process this stuff. It's not easy stuff. So don't think you can just say, well, get your arms around it. Come on, bonehead. It's a simple thing. Come on. Don't be such a nitwit. It's not that easy. It requires a lot of really in deep internal self-reflection and to get clear on what's important, to get clear on what's driving you. That's a conscious decision and what's an unconscious social norm that you're attached to that you don't even realize is driving your perspective, get on the balcony and observe it in as much of a neutral way as you can. And that can be really hard and it takes a lot of time. And then I think we touched on the other one, which is don't let other people's opinions about your wealth define your identity. Your identity is not a function of what you were given unless you make it. So that's your choice. I choose not to make it a part of my identity, although it is a part of my identity. It's just not something that I really think about very much. Is it part of what you made? So not just what you were given? Is it part of what you made because it's from toil? Yeah. The fact that I have a lot of personal savings and that I've worked hard and I've, and I've done well professionally on my own is a huge piece of what makes me feel more comfortable with it. I don't actually think it should be. It shouldn't have to be but it is because I'm proud of myself. Like I'm proud of what I did. I'm proud of what I've accomplished. I'm proud of what I've earned. And I don't have anything to be ashamed of because I can support myself. And even if I couldn't, like if I had decided to become a really bad ballet dancer, but I just loved ballet, like that I should have been able to do that because I have the means to do it. But for me personally, it was really important to me that I had the ability to be successful financially on my own. It's a function of my security, of my self-confidence, because all that stuff can go away. And I think about that. I think about it a lot. It can go away. And I've seen, I've seen what it does. It can just go poof, gone. That's it. And it's okay. Like I, I still feel okay about that because I wouldn't be the only person who had to figure it out on their own. And I will be able to figure it out. That's the best gift I ever got was an education because nobody can take it away. Beautiful. They can take my jewelry. They can take my house. <laughs> I can take my car. I can't take my education. How do you define your relationship with money now on a scale like healthy to unhealthy? <laughs> oh, I think it's super unhealthy. <laughs> do you think it is? Well, 
I'm glad you're asking me to, to check in. Makes me think that you don't think it's as bad as I think it is. I think I've done a lot. When I say I've done a lot of work, like I think about it, I talk about it, I process this. I've confronted many of my biases around money. That said, like just this week, it dawned on me why I'm such a cheap bastard, and it's because I don't want to be like my dad. So, like, I'm still uncovering, I'm still excavating psychological barriers that I didn't realize were driving my behavior unconsciously. So, I don't think I have, I, I wouldn't say it's healthy. It's probably somewhere in this, maybe not unhealthy, but I, I mean, I, I live a comfortable life. I don't double use my dryer sheets anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I like that though. Having a consciousness is get in your mind a more healthier relationship and you're, you've worked there and you're continue to work. Towards yeah. having a more conscious. Right. I wouldn't say I have an abusive relationship with money. I don't overly deny myself and I don't overly indulge myself. Like I don't, there's nothing that I want that I don't have, but I don't really want much. There's not a lot of stuff that's important to me. Stuff mm-hmm. isn't really what matters. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I need to chase more stuff or a bigger stuff or more expensive stuff. I don't find fulfillment in that. And what's your next money conversation going to be? It's twofold. One is that big pot of gold I talked about. If my father dies, which it's not clear that he will, but if he does, that pot of gold may get decanted into five smaller pots. And what I realized just recently, actually on our G5 call, was that the benefits that I got from my grandfather, which were things like my education paid for, the down payment on my first home, you know, if, if I need medical expenses, I've got it. That cushion doesn't exist for my nieces and nephews, my siblings who have kids, because my father didn't do for them what my grandfather did for us. So I'm thinking about taking my smaller, my, my one-fifth pot of gold and turning it into either a family bank. I don't even know if the trust documents would even allow this to take place, but try to find a creative way to provide for my nieces and nephews the way my grandfather provided for us. I think that would be really, really special because I'm not going to need that money. I mean, that pot of gold isn't, I've got enough. I've got more than enough. So I'm more thinking about ways to move it out, not pull it in. So I think that would be really special to be able to do that. And then the other one is just, you know, continuing to do more work on charities. The charity stuff is becoming more and more important to me as I, the gratitude that I feel and the awareness that continues to grow related to my privilege in pairing grows this desire to help others more and more. And thank you so much. This has been such an eye-opening conversation. We really appreciate you stepping way out of your comfort zone. It was great. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Anne. Sure, my pleasure. Sandy here with today's Personal Finance Insight. In our conversation with Anne, she mentions her grandfather's use of trusts to benefit the rising generations of his family. Trusts are a common estate planning vehicle used to transfer assets during lifetime or at death from one generation to the next, or in the case of a generation skipping trust to the grandchildren. In these situations, the trusts are typically irrevocable, meaning that once the trust is established, it can't be materially changed. The trust agreement, which is the legal document that created the trust, determines how the trust operates and when it expires. There are at least three types of parties to each trust. They are the grantor, the beneficiary, and the trustee. The grantor is the person or persons who established the trust and fund it. The grantor determines all the terms of the trust and can decide how stringent or flexible the trust will be 
about various matters, including what trust assets will be distributed to the beneficiary and when. As you've likely inferred, the beneficiary is the person or people who benefit from the trust assets, and the trustee is the person, persons, or corporation that is responsible for operating the trust. Importantly, the trustee has a fiduciary responsibility to the beneficiary. This means that the trustee must follow the terms of the trust and manage them in a way that is in the beneficiary's best interest. Or said differently, the trustee may not put their own interest in front of the beneficiaries. Some trusts, like the one that Anne talked about, allow the beneficiary to become a future co-trustee or sole trustee of the trust. People establish trust for a variety of different reasons. The most common includes providing financial assets for the beneficiary's healthcare, education expenses, and to subsidize or support their lifestyle. Some trusts are set up to keep and fund the ongoing cost of a specific asset, like a family home, available for the family members to enjoy into the future. Other trusts are established to provide financial resources to family members and to charity. And some trusts are funded to keep family assets outside the reach of the beneficiary spouse or from creditors. Special needs trusts are designed to provide additional resources to a beneficiary with disabilities in a way that won't disqualify them from receiving government assistance for the disability. Regardless of why they're established, trusts are an efficient way to privately transfer assets that avoids the hassle of probate for transfers that happen at death. With proper planning, the trust structure may also allow the grantor to minimize or avoid gift and estate tax on the transfer. Some grantors struggle with how best to structure and fund trusts to serve their beneficiaries. Others wrestle with when and how to make the beneficiaries aware of the trust assets. In my experience as a wealth manager helping clients think through estate planning and asset transfer decisions, I find it's best to approach the process by reviewing with the clients their values, their intention, and the purpose they've defined for their wealth. Having these important guiding principles front of mind makes the whole process much more straightforward, purposeful, and rewarding. Once the strategy is in place, we develop plans with clients for preparing the beneficiaries to receive the future transfers. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.